We're excited today because you're gonna hear from Jason Friend, Assemblies of God World Missionary and Evangelist, who's gonna share a powerful message at Spiritual Emphasis 2019. Listen in. I love Teen Challenge, and I love you guys. And I want you to know that you are not here by chance. We're going to talk tonight about reigniting your life, talk about walking in the power of God. We're going to talk about experiencing miracles. And we're going to talk about what God is going to do in your life is going to make a revolutionary difference. Now, like our brother said, I was a missionary. My wife and I served in, in Central America and Latin America, specifically Costa Rica. For 15 years, we lived there. We were on radio and we were on television. And one time we had a campaign much like this one, except we used to do them open air. After a while, we did buy a few tents, and one of the tents was called La Montaña, and inside La Montaña, we could fit 5,000 people, and we had a deliverance tent, which was this size, and in this tent, this size, we could, we could squeeze in 1,500 demon-possessed demon people. And so we had the deliverance tent next to the big tent, and I said to my wife, this campaign was located close to our house, I said, uh, sweetheart, you take the car. And I'll go in a cab because she would start at 5.30 with the children doing an evangelistic outreach. And then I would follow up with all the old people, as she would say, which were young people and adults. And so I said, you take the car. I'll go in a cab. 5 o'clock, I walk outside. I flag down a cab. The cab stops. I get in the cab. He asks me where I'm going. I give him the directions. He looks at the directions. He immediately recognizes where we're going. He says, oh, hey, you're going to that campaign. I said, yes, I am. He said, you know, my favorite preacher is preaching in that campaign. I said, you don't say. He said, yes, his name is Jason Friend. I said, really? He said, yes. He said, one day, one day, I'm going to meet him. I said, well, friend, I think today's your lucky day. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm Jason Friend. He looked in the rearview mirror and he said, you're a liar. I said, I, I am Jason Friend. He said, you're a liar. He said, show me your license. I pull out my driver's license. I give it to him. He looks at the license, looks in the rearview mirror, looks at the license, looks at the rearview mirror. He goes, you are Jason Friend. I said, yes, I have been for some time. <laughs> now, why was it that he did not recognize me? Well, I'll tell you why he didn't recognize me. Because when one is on television or radio or even today like social media, we take a thousand pictures of ourselves, and you know how they look. <laughs> and after taking 50 shots of oneself, you never say, let me choose the ugliest one and put that up there. You always choose the best one to put that up there. And so you have an image that you are projecting, and that is precisely why when you meet someone for the first time that all you've seen is their pictures on Facebook, when you see them for the first time, you say, oh my goodness, they look like they've been raised from the dead. What happened to you? You look great online, now you look like a corpse. Well, the issue is, friends, that if we want to understand God and his power, we got to strip away all the nonsense that the world has been telling us about who God is, and we got to tap into the Word of God. 
We need to understand who God is by his word, not by what the media says, not by whatever Joe Blow says, but we have to go back to the word of God and understand that he is a God of love, he's a God of mercy. Many people paint a picture of God as ready to condemn you. He's ready to cast you into hell, make one wrong move and you're toast. But the truth of the matter is, is that God is a merciful God. He is a loving God. He is a gracious God and he has come to forgive us, to bind up the brokenhearted and to set the captives free. How many of you need to tap into that power tonight? I want to share with you an episode of one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. His name is Peter. I'm going to read two, I'm going to read one passage about Peter and his calling, and that passage is found in two Gospels, one in Matthew and one in Mark. They are literally word for word identical, so I'm only going to read one. And then I'm going to ask you a question. This is what it says. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they, were, they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Okay. Is there anyone here, anyone at all, that would doubt that Peter, at that moment, made the choice to leave the nets, leave the boats, and leave fishing behind to become a disciple? Is there anyone here that begs to differ than what it says here in the Word? Are we all in agreement? This is not a trick question. Are we all in agreement that Peter made a choice? Well, a few chapters later, there's an episode in Matthew. It's also found in Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 8, and that is that Peter's mother-in-law gets sick. She's got a fever, and Jesus goes into the house. He lays his hands on her forehead. She's immediately healed. Then she gets up and begins to serve them food. Now, I don't know if Jesus healed her because he wanted to be fed or because he had compassion on Peter's mother-in-law, but either way, the bottom line is, is that Peter's mother-in-law got healed after Peter was called. The next chapter, Luke chapter 5. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, and, an all, and a large crowd gathers around him. The Bible says that they're pressing in on him. And so in order to minister to them, in order to teach them, he looks for a way to distance himself from the crowd, and he sees a few boats he calls out or reaches out to the owner of those boats who had just gotten back from fishing all night, and when that individual turns around, it's Peter. Now, wait a second. You and I were just in agreement that Peter, a couple of chapters ago, left fishing to be a disciple, and all of a sudden, we see him coming back from a fishing trip. I think Peter has been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. I think he is doing what they call in business, he has been double dipping, you see. He has been calling himself a disciple, and yet early in the morning when Jesus goes out to teach, he spots Peter coming back from fishing. Jesus doesn't say anything to him. He just gets into the boat, and they push out. Jesus teaches all day, and you know what Peter's thinking. He knows he's going to have to have a conversation with Jesus. He knows he's feeling really guilty because he's got to fess up the fact that he 
went back to fishing. What he said he wouldn't do, now he's doing it. So Jesus, after all the commotion is finished, he turns to Peter and he says, let's go fishing. And Peter says, well, it's confession time, you know. We were out all night, Lord, and the fish ain't biting. But because it's you, we'll go fishing. And Peter throws out the nets, and the Bible says that they catch such a large quantity of fish that the boat literally begins to sink. So they call out to their colleagues that are in a boat a few, a few hundred yards away that they would come over and help, and that boat begins to sink from all the fish. And when Peter sees this miraculous catch of fish, he falls to his knees and he says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are because you turned your back on the call of God and you went back to default mode. And why did he? I mean, how, how long has it been? 30 days? 30 days? Maybe 30 days since you said yes and now you're back fishing. You know why? Because he couldn't trust God with his finances. Peter went back to default mode. And every time you see Peter, when the heat gets turned up, he goes back to default mode. But let me tell you something. Peter's not a very good fisherman. Because anytime you look in the New Testament, he never catches anything. Not one. Not one. Unless Jesus is in the boat, he never catches anything. That is an entirely different sermon, an entirely different point. But let me just say that unless Jesus is in your boat, you ain't catching nothing. That point was free. Has nothing to do with this message. But every time he gets in a bind, he goes to default mode. And you and I do the same thing. We say, God, I will trust you with my finances, and then we'll take it back. God, I will trust you with my future. Let me take that back. I will, touch you, I will trust you with my anxieties, my pain. I think I'm going to run my life better. I want to do this. I'm going to do it this way. And then all of a sudden you realize you can't, so you give it over to God, and then you take it back. Peter's just like us. Now, I had my struggles like you did, or like you do, like we all do. I was raised in a crazy family. How many of you come from a crazy family? Raise your hand. Unless, of course, your family members are here, then you want to keep that hand down. When I was three, my parents were separated. When I was nine, they were divorced. When I was 15, my mom remarried somebody who was 32 years older than she was, and she was his sixth wife. He had been married six times. He had said yes so many times in a church that he had permanent rice embedded in his forehead. So, some of you under the age of 35, look for somebody older than 40, and they'll explain it to you. My dad had been divorced four times. He used to say to me, son, marriage is grand. Divorce is 400 grand. <laughs> so we struggled. Our family struggled with substance abuse. We struggled with divorce. We struggled with, with conflict. There was drugs. Every kind of vice you can imagine we struggled with. After I got saved, there were certain things that I could not rid myself of. 
I'm going to confess to you that even after I got saved, and I am to this day, to this day I've not been able to kick the habit, I'm a chocoholic. Now, some of you out there don't understand a word I'm talking about because you're addicted to caffeine, yeah? But the chocoholics that are here tonight, they say, I know exactly what he's talking about, man, because they're packing chocolate right now. They got it on them right now. Well, what happens when you're a chocoholic, at the base of that is really someone who's a foodie. And my default mode when the temperature would get higher than I could tolerate is that I would turn to food. I don't have the photograph, but I used to weigh 240 pounds. Yes, I did. At 27 years of age, my blood pressure was 170 over 100, and my cholesterol was almost 300. I was a big, fat, happy boy. I could devour... You know those Pyrex 9-inch by 12-inch pans, you know? I could devour a, bra a, br a, a batch of brownies by myself. <laughs> we shouldn't be saying amen to that, by the way. That's not what you want to be saying amen to. I struggled big time until I walked into the doctor's office and the doctor said to me, listen, Mr. Friend, you're not going to be able to see your daughters graduate from high school because you'll be dead by 40. With cholesterol that high and blood pressure that high, you got to figure out, you got you to change what's going on. He was a Christian. He said, you got to change your mind. You got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I said, what do I got to do? He said, you're going to have to give up chocolate. I said, yeah, that's not going to work for me. We're going to have to find something else here because I ain't giving up chocolate. He says, well, you're going to have to do some exercise. I said, all right, I'll, I'll start to run. So the first day, I ran a block. The second day, I ran a block plus a mailbox. Third day, I ran a block plus two mailboxes. And I built it up, and I built it up until I was finally running. I was running two miles every day. I would run for 90 seconds, and I would walk for 90 seconds, and I insisted on not going back to default mode. Had to move out of default mode and replace the bad with something good. And as I continued on, the weight started to come off, and pretty soon I dropped down to like 180 pounds, which is about where I'm at. I've been here for about 22 years. Interestingly, about four years ago, a very dear friend of mine, his name is Claudio Freyson. He's sitting in my office. I'm about to interview him. He and I have been friends for two decades. I'm about to interview him on my radio program. He pastors in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And he says to me, he's 60 years of age, right? I'm 40-something at the time. He says to me, you know, I ran the New York Marathon about three or four months ago. I said, get out of town. I said, you're 60. He says, I know. I, I ran the New York. I, and, I, you know, I don't know about you, but when I start to drill into myself, I don't, tell, I don't talk to myself by my first name. I talk to myself by my last name, right? I said, friend, you, you, you got to get with me. You can't let this 60-year-old, you got you to let this 60-year-old pastor, you got to get out there and run, man. 
So I built it up to three miles and four miles and five miles. I built it up to six miles. And my goal was to run a marathon. And in 2015, in October of 2015, I ran my first marathon. Now, now don't get excited. I did not win the marathon. I just didn't die during the marathon. The guy who won the marathon, by the time I even got close to the finish line, he had already been to his hotel. He was showered, shaved. He was at 35,000 feet on his way back to Africa before I even got close to the finish line. He was three hours ahead of me. And all the temptations that you face in your walk with the Lord are the same temptations that I faced during that marathon. Mile eight, just in the beginning portion of the marathon, that's when you're beginning your walk with the Lord. It's not the first month, but perhaps just in the first six months, all of a sudden, the first real significant temptation comes your way. At mile eight, there was a group of people, I'm not kidding you, you know what they were handing out to all the runners? Donut holes. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? In the OC Marathon, they got a guy playing guitar at 7 o'clock in the morning with a, a table of beer. Are you kidding me? I mean, you would never even finish the race. You wouldn't even be able to find the, the, the end of the race. I mean, what are you thinking? Mile 18, I don't know who on the committee decided that it would be a good idea to run the path right in front of a Starbucks. But in the window was one of the most sensual things I'd ever seen. It was a chocolate mocha frappuccino. And I watched five runners walk out of that race and get right into that Starbucks. Mile 18, that was it. We're done. And you know, you see a lot of people in their walk with the Lord within six months, 12 months, two years, and they pick up on these temptations and they just leave the race. In the marathon, and I have to ask the question, I have only done this recently, how many of you have ever run and finished a marathon? Can I see a show of hands? We've got one, two, maybe, maybe 15 of us here. The person who, for the first time, usually it's the first time runner, about mile 18 to mile 21, they, there is a sensation called hitting the wall. And that is when the body runs out of glucose, you have no more energy, and your body says, we're done. I'm done. And in, within that 10-minute period, if you keep going, the body stops burning sugar, and it sort of switches tanks, and it starts burning fat. It draws its energy from the fat instead of the glucose, which is the sugar, this is the food that you've been eating. But for that 10 to 15-minute period, you are in hell because everything in your body tells you we're not moving forward. And you run basically based upon a decision. And many times in your Christian walk with the Lord, you will not feel like following Jesus. You, the world will throw every temptation at you, and you're ready to throw in the towel, sit down, you're just going to give up. And the only reason why you keep forward is because you have made a decision to follow Jesus. I saw many people 
I saw many people hit the wall and they sat down. As I see many believers who were once walking with the Lord just simply throw in the towel and sit down. And the heart of God is really to reach out to these people and say, I'll tell you what, we're not in this to break any records. We're in this to finish the race. And if you would just get up and walk, I will walk with you and let's finish the race together. And that's the heart of the Lord. The heart of the Lord is not for you to break every record in the world, but the heart of the Lord is for you to finish the race. And he will walk with you no matter how slow you have to go, but he will not abandon you, nor will he forsake you, and he will see you through because that's the heart of God. I crossed the finish line. Five hours and seven minutes. Oh, I didn't break any records either. When I crossed that finish line, they hung this medal around my neck, and my wife is calling out from somewhere. I don't know who I am at this point. And she says, Jason, Jason. And I'm like, I, I look down, and by the way, the worst part of the marathon is the walk back to the car. <laughs> I look at this medal, and I think to myself, you know, so many times we think we earn the medal when we cross the finish line. No, we, we earn the medal every day we get up and we train for that marathon. That's when you earn it. The Bible says you will be given a crown. And you are not earning that crown when you get to heaven. You earn it every day that you faithfully serve the Lord. Every day that you're faithful in service of the Lord. The first nugget I want to leave with you is that people of great faith don't revert to their default setting. They break that cycle of going back to default mode. So don't revert to your old ways of thinking when times are tough. Break that mold. Make the decision. Finish the race. You're not in here to break all the records. You're here to finish the race. So keep your mind set on the goal. Secondly, people of great faith rise above the skepticism. There will be enough people in your life, and most of them have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to the healthy, godly things in life. So don't surround yourself with people who don't know what they're talking about. Surround yourself with people who are godly and know how to lead you and get you on the path to get to heaven. That's what you got to do. I had people telling me, oh, oh, no, you don't want to eat too much broccoli. No, 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 you don't want to do that. That's bad for you. You got to balance it out with pizza. What's wrong with you? You listen to what healthy people say. I even gave up a doctor because that dude was humongously overweight. I, I said, man, you obviously don't believe in what you're preaching. So I'm going to swap you out for somebody who does. I know that sounds harsh, but we all have a responsibility. You have one life. You have one shot at this. And God wants you to have life and have it in abundance. Not to squander it away, listening to people who have no idea what they're talking about. 
And for some of us, that also means that we got to let go of that resentment. Got to let it go. Because that resentment is that those nagging voices that we just allow to keep repeating in our head. I had to do a camp. I was doing a, no, actually, we were in the middle of a conference on the East Coast, about 10,000 people. These people had heard me like 10 times. And my wife is noticing that I'm on the side of the stage. It's a big arena. And I got, got my hand in my pocket like this, and I'm pacing back and forth. And she says, what's wrong with you? I said, I need a story for this message. She said, well, what kind of story? I said, I need a story about healing. She goes, oh, why don't you tell my favorite story that my dad tells? I said, well, I don't know what your favorite story that your dad tells. She says, it's a story about this guy who used to come to our tent because they were church planters in Paraguay. He'd come every night, this guy in a wheelchair. He came down in the front every night, came forward for healing every night. He never got healed. And after a month, my dad, now she's telling me we're like 60 seconds away from being introduced, right? She's telling me this story that I'm hopefully going to get, and I'm going to use it in my message. 60 seconds away. So she says they'd wheel this guy down in the front every night, and he... You know, he never got healed. And so my dad comes off the stage this night, and he puts the microphone in his face, and he says, what are you going to do when the Lord heals you? And the guy says, I'm going to go home, I'm going to get my gun, and I'm going to shoot the guy who put me in this wheelchair. I said, wow. Now, I'm like 30 seconds away from being introduced. I said, wow. I said, how does the story end? My wife says, oh, I don't remember. You're going to have to call my dad. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah, you got to call my dad. I can't. It's a good story, she says. You're going to really, really want to know how it ends. I just can't remember how it ends. I'm like, oh. So I call my father-in-law up and... I don't know if you know anything about Latin culture. I've lived in Latin America a good chunk of my life, and we've given our lives to Latin people. We love Latin people, but Latin people are not gringos, right? You know how you talk to a gringo? You just go straight to the point. You call them up and say, hey, what time are you coming? They tell you. Say, hey, where's my money? And they tell you. That's the way gringos operate. We're direct, right? Latins are not that way. No, you got to go way around the bend before you even get close to the point. You got to ask them about their kids, their mom, their dad. You got to ask them all kinds of questions before you even get close to the point. Otherwise, you're offending them. Well, my in laws have lived way too long, 40 years in Latin America, so I got to go through the protocol before I even get to the point with my own father in law. So I'm asking him how the grandkids are, how his wife is, and all this. I said, listen, I got to know. How did that guy, what happened to that guy who got healed in Paraguay? And he goes, what guy? There's lots of people healed in Paraguay. I said, the guy who was in the wheelchair. He goes, there were lots of guys in wheelchairs. What, which one are you talking about? I said, the one who's going to shoot the guy who put him in. The, oh, yeah. He says, that's a great story. I said, would you mind telling me how it ends? He said, when he said that he was going to shoot the guy who put him in the wheelchair, I looked at him and I said, and that's exactly why the Lord hasn't healed you. But I also told him that if he ever wanted to be healed, he was going to have to learn to forgive the guy who put him in that wheelchair. Otherwise, he would never walk again. He said it took him a week to digest that. And finally, after a week, he forgave the guy. And several days after that, he got up and he was walking. He was completely healed by the power of God. 
people of great faith, if you're taking notes, write this down. People of great faith, they visualize their miracle before it happens. They see it. The woman with the issue of blood, she says to herself, if I could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Blind Bartimaeus along the side of the road. He is completely blind. The Pharisees who can see can't see anything. He's the one who recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. He thinks to himself, if I can just get his attention, I will be healed. The woman whose daughter was demon-possessed, she knows that she's going to undercome a barrage of insults of the disciples, but she knows if she can get audience with Jesus that her daughter will be healed. The centurion whose servant was deathly ill sends word, and he says to Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. These are people who visualize the miracle before it happened. So see your miracle. Visualize your miracle. See it. Now, lawyers do this, and business people do this, and athletes and NBA people, they sit in the locker room, and they're visualizing the game, you see. And the disciples, they visualize the kingdom at hand, people being healed, revival breaking out. They see the reaching. You have to visualize that miracle. And finally, I'm going to share this last testimony. I don't preach long. I keep it rather short because I believe in that age-old proverb that says, blessed are the short-winded for they will be invited back. We needed a miracle when we were living in Costa Rica. Now, the amount that I'm going to throw out to you, you might say, that's ah, chump change. But when you have nothing, a dollar is a miracle. We needed $5,000. And for $5,000, we were going to move back to the United States. We were going to get five airline tickets for my wife, my, my, my wife, myself, and our three daughters, eight, six, and four. We were going to fly back. And with the extra funds, we were going to put a, dump, a, a deposit down on a, an apartment in Costa Mesa, buy a used car. And if there's any money left over, clothes for our three daughters. Now, you know that I'm not asking for the moon. For five grand, you know that I'm asking for the minimum, just the minimum. And so I wrote that down in my prayer journal. I said, Lord, I need 5000 This was March 31st, 1999. A month passes, nothing. Six weeks go by, nothing. Finally, our home church in Costa Rica invites me to preach before we leave, about a week and a half before we leave. And for the first time, that pastor, church about 4,000, that pastor goes, he goes, you know, I just kind of feel my heart. We need to receive an offering for the friends. And let's receive an offering for them. And they received an offering, and that offering came in. It was $1,000. Now, those of you who are really good with math, how much more do I need? Four grand. I'm impressed. I was in Saddleback, and I heard somebody over on the left-hand side, they, they just shouted out, $6,000. I said, dude, you're going in the wrong direction, man. $4,000 is what I need. We had enough to get the airline tickets. We bought the airline tickets. We're flying home. Just before we left Costa Rica, my father-in-law calls me, and he says to me, he says, hey, Claudio Freyson is having a crusade 
in San Diego on the Marine Base on the island that is adjacent to Coronado. It's on the other side of the island, and we need a translator from Spanish into English. Would you be willing to translate him? It's the day after you land. I said, fabulous. I would love to do that. So as soon as we landed, we literally drove straight to San Diego, and I translated two nights in this campaign. There's about 3,000 people there. And the next day, it was a Thursday, Thursday morning, the host pastor invites us all to a breakfast and starts handing out these envelopes, right? They give one to the preacher. They give one to the worship leader. They give one to uh, someone else that was involved, like a special artist, and then they gave one to me. Now, I'm just assuming that this has got monetary value inside this envelope, right? I'm not presumptuous. I'm just assuming so all the participants either got a thank you letter or a check. But I'm not going to open it there because I got a little bit of decency. So I walk up to the host pastor and I said, do I have your permission to apply whatever I'm, whatever's inside this envelope to whatever need I have? He says, you could do with it whatever you want. I said, thank you very much. And I put the envelope in my jacket. I'm not going to open it right there, right? So I wait. After the breakfast, I take the, my daughters and we're walking down the street. We're about, I don't know, a quarter of a mile away from the place. We find a little park. They're on the monkey bars. I pull out the envelope. And I start to play the game that you've all played. Don't pretend that you don't play the game, because I know you play the game. And the game is, I wonder how much is in the envelope. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking to myself, $250 a night for a translator. Not that I think that I'm only worth $250 a night as a translator. But I'm thinking I know what the going rate is. $250. Maybe there's $500 in this envelope, if there's anything at all. So I open up the envelope, and indeed, there's a check inside. And I pull out the check, and the check says four comma zero 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 dot zero zero. Now the skeptical part in me said, "Dude, you got to look to see where they actually write it out because if that doesn't match that, <laughs> ain't gonna happen." So my eyes scan down, and it says $4,000. Next thing I know, my daughters are standing over me going, Daddy, you okay? I had fainted. Daddy, are you okay? I, I got up, man, and I, I, just, I just shook my booty. I was just, I, was, I held that check in the air, and I said, the Lord provides. The Lord provides for those who need and those who trust him. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. I'll tell you what, we got the used vehicle, we got the apartment, and we were able to get clothes for our three daughters, and six weeks later, so content, so happy, we're on the itineration trail, we were somewhere in New Mexico, a month and a half later, when suddenly my cell phone rings, I answer it, I was sitting on the bed in the hotel room, girls are in the pool, I said, hello, he says, is this brother Jason, I said, yes. He said, this is John. I said, how can I help you? He says, I'm in charge of the accounting for the Claudio Freyson crusade. I said, how can I help you? He said, by chance, did I write you a check for $400? The world froze. I said, no. He said, how much was it for? 
I said it was for $4,000. He said, $4,000? $4,000? He said, oh, man, there's been a $3,600 mistake. You're going to have to return the difference. How did this happen? I said, well, let me tell you how it happened. I was in Costa Rica, and I needed $5,000, and I said, Lord, I need you to provide a miracle in the church that we were preaching at. Give us $1,000, and we flew all the way back to the United States and with the hopes of getting a used car, an apartment, and clothes for our girls. And after translating, you gave me a check for exactly what we needed. But if you're telling me that was a mistake, you got to give me some time because all that dough is gone. He says to me, are you telling me that the Holy Spirit grabbed me by the hand and made me write you a check for $4,000? I said, listen, man, what's ever between you and God is none of my business. And the Lord gave me a prophetic word. Two words, specifically. Shut up. <laughs> Have you ever been with any other believers in a room and been told to just be quiet? It doesn't work. No one can be quiet for 10 seconds. It's impossible. Eventually, there's someone over there that'll go, Eventually, the Lord tells me, shut up. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, silence. 1,004, 1,005, 1,006, silence. 7, 8, 9, silence. I thought he dropped dead of a heart attack. <laughs> After 10 seconds, he says, you know, I believe. I believe this is of God, so I'll tell you what. I'll do what I got to do to find the funds. You keep the $4,000, and he hung up. That was in 1999, and he has not called me back since. Nor have they ever asked me to translate again for Claudio Freyson. He did not rescue you from the river to drown you in the sea. He did not call you out of the slums to baptize you in hell. He has not called you to a life of misery. He is calling you to a life of victory. The Bible says that he is a rewarder. That without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must first believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So open your heart tonight. Seek God and allow him to reward you. Father, we thank you for your wonderful presence. We thank you for your wonderful spirit. And I ask, Lord, tonight that you would pour out your goodness, your blessing, your encouragement, that we would not go back to default mode, 
that during those times of temptation, we would find your ways of escape, of management, and moving beyond those patterns that are destructive. I pray, Lord, for every one of those who are facing temptation tonight. We understand that those temptations come in waves. They come at strategic times, and so we come against the principalities of darkness. And we bind those spirits. We cast them out. We rebuke them. And we say, be gone in Jesus' name. Every one of those attacks, every one of those destructive patterns, and we speak right now the power, the power of Jesus, the power of God that breaks every one of those old molds. And I ask, oh God, that tonight you would pour out your spirit in such a powerful way that you would reignite our lives. You would rejuvenate our spirits. You would provide for every need and that you would set the captive free. I know you, Lord, that you are here to bind up the brokenhearted and to set the captive free. So I pray that you would do that in Jesus' mighty name. Friend, if you've come into this tent tonight and you have always been dealing with going back to default mode, the Lord is calling you right now to break free from that default mode, to experience his power because he wants to fill you with his spirit and make you fishers of people all around the globe. He wants to use you to make a difference. And if that's your desire, I want you to raise your hand. And then I want you to stand to your feet. And as you stand to your feet, I'm going to ask you to leave the place where you're standing and find a way down here to the front and say, Lord, I have come to fill up. I've come to fill this cup of mine. I've come to receive everything that you have for me. I've come to get all that you have for me, Lord. I've come to receive everything that you have for me. Leave the place where you're standing. Make your way down here to the front and allow the Lord to fill your cup. The Spirit of God is in this place. He is in this place here to bind up the brokenhearted, to release the captives, to set those people free. All these default, all these defaults are now broken. These default modes are broken. Esas configuración de fábrica se rompe en el nombre de Jesús de Nazaret. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, venimos contra todo, todo potestad, toda potestad y todo principado en el nombre de Jesús. We come against every principality in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. We break free from those strongholds. We break free from those chains. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Lift up your voice before the Lord. Lift up your voice before the Lord. Lift up your voice before the Lord. Begin to proclaim your freedom. Begin to proclaim your freedom. Proclaim your freedom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I can see chains beginning to fall. I can see chains beginning to fall. Veo cadenas que está cayendo al suelo. I can see chains beginning to fall. Se rompe la cadena. The chains are breaking. Chains are breaking. Chains are breaking. Hallelujah. 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 Begin to proclaim that your chains are broken. Begin to proclaim your chains are broken. We proclaim it in Jesus' name. We proclaim it in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you haven't already, 
Subscribe today on your mobile device to get exclusive new content from Teen Challenge of Southern California. For more information, visit us on the web at teenchallenge.org.